Hello and welcome to another LSE Africa Summit podcast. I'm sure you've heard about it now, but in case you haven't, the LSE Africa Summit is a two-day conference taking place on the 22nd and 23rd of April this year. The summit will have a research and business conference that will feature discussions on challenge and conventions and thinking beyond investment in African development. My name is Yossi Alaleya and I'm, I'm the head of communications for the summit and I'm joined by Justin Villamil, our correspondent. Today we'll be talking to Jennifer Mukambi, a writer and lecturer in creative writing at the University of Lancaster, where she also completed a PhD in creative writing. She was born and raised in Kampala, Uganda. In 2014, Jennifer was awarded the Commonwealth Short Story Prize for her short story titled, Let's Tell This Story Properly. We're very excited to have Jennifer here with us to tell us more about her work in African literature in general, as well as the role creative writing plays in how we view African cultures and development. Thank you, Jennifer, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. So... Justin. So I wanted to ask you about your recent work compared to your early work. So your more recent work is a big change from Chintu, your early work, um, in that Chintu focuses on more the Ugandan side of things, whereas your most recent work focuses on identity and the diaspora. What prompted this change? Um, actually, there has been no change. I, I just decided that my novels will be set in Uganda, will focus on what happens in Uganda, and my short stories will focus on uh, what happens in the West, because both of them are my experiences. But I thought that I would write um, about immigration and Ugandan experiences outside Uganda better in the short story form. Can I ask why? Uh, what is it about short stories that lends itself to that kind of topic? It's just the uh, style of writing that I chose for, for the short stories. For the short stories, I am deeply aware of the Western reader. Yes, and I, I do think about them and how they read and how they would read it because the, the, the short story is addressing a an experience that is in the West as well. So I think about Western readers. And since I've been living in Britain, I am aware that we read differently. Uh, British people read differently from to the Ugandan readers. Because I was aware the way I was reading in Uganda and the way I read now. So in a way, that affects the way I write the short stories. But when I go to the novel, mm-hmm. I, I just focus on the African reader. And the reason for that is that when I read other novels, especially because I grew up reading Western novels, right. I don't think these writers care so much about whether the world reader understand them or whether the African reader understands them. And we do understand them. So for me, I just focus on Ugandan readers. Now, whether the West understands or not is another issue. Right. That Actually, that's very interesting. Um, can I ask? So one of the things when I was reading Shinto, this question that kept coming back to me was basically, I mean, why haven't I read anything like this before? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's an extraordinary book. So Chintu is, it's before anything else, it's unapologetically Ugandan. Uh, and even when you do touch on the colonial period, it's touched on as kind of a feature rather than a defining narrative. Yes. So for me, as an American, it was genuinely a really new experience. 
and I couldn't. I absolutely. I couldn't put the book down. So my question to you is, when can we expect to see African literature like this break into the mainstream outside of the continent? Uh, what What do you think it would take? Well. <laughs> it's going to be hard. <laughs> One, because it has failed to be published in the West. So there's a reason why African writers don't write like me. Mm. The one reason is that uh, books are published by Western publishers. Okay? Right. They are edited by Western editors. Mm. And they are commissioned by agents who are Western. So these uh, three groups cater for the Western audience. Uh, for example, Chintu would not have been published if it did not win a manuscript prize in Kenya. Mm. Okay? And then the Kenyans published it. Mm. And there was so much attention to it in Africa, but the West has ignored it. Mm. So there's a way, if you look at other writers, they are taken up by an agent and then by an editor and then by a publisher. And those publishers are basically businesses. And they know that the market is in Britain, it's in America, and it's in Australia. Mm. And if you're going to write a novel like Chinto, and they suspect that readers may not read it, they're not going to to take it. So it will take African publishers mm. like Wani becoming global and then you will see that writing coming up. Mm. You know, that's very interesting because the, the two things kind of stuck out for me in what you just said. So British people read differently and then this Western audience, Western editors, Western writers. And I think it's interesting, you know, so what is it? How do you define this difference in the way that the Brits would read and the way that an African would read, say, an African book? So, And I think of someone like Chimamanda Adichie, who's, how do, how do I say this, Western um, acknowledged or acclaimed, you know? And some people actually have issues. Some Nigerians I know have issues with her work because they feel like it panders to the Western gaze, which is very interesting. So, you know, how do you define or describe this difference in the way that the British and Africans would read, say, literature about Africans? Okay. Naturally, the way we read depends on who we are. Uh, culturally, geolocation, sexuality, gender, race, all those things affect the way we read. So there's, there's, there's nothing to do about that. That's the way it is. So, for example, if I go to see a movie, you know, normally I would look out to how many black people are in the movie. And when I'm satisfied with that, how have they been portrayed? Do mm. you see what I mean? But when you are an African writer and you're writing in the West, there's a way the West has created an Africa, okay? Yeah. And that Africa is what they are looking for in your novel. Right. Now, that Africa is not available in my novel. They would be shocked. You know, they, they, it, they, it, they, it does, much of it doesn't make sense to them because what they know it's not what I've written. For example, when I was writing 
my first novel, which I haven't published yet, for an MA class. And I showed a dad who was less, you know, assertive, and a mother who was assertive. Hmm. Uh, they kept on telling me, but African fathers are in control. <laughs> Women are repressed. They are quiet. This is not right. You know? And sometimes you, you know, you hear it, even among Africans, say, oh, but this is different because there's been this Africa that has been created, but it's not my Africa. So it, my job, even though I'm writing in the West, is to write against that. And I think until we do that as African writers, African readers will remain cynical. They know we write about them, but we are not writing for them. Yeah. And so we publish these novels. They are published in the West, and then they arrive in Africa, and they read them, and they say, okay, if you think that is good. And for, for, because of that, the African canon is being formed and shaped by the West. That is so. That is absolutely true, and you know, it it hits right at this concept of challenging narratives. You know, challenging the conventional way of thinking about Africa, and I, I it makes me think of this. Um, I think he's an, a British Indian writer called Nikesh Shukla, who wrote a book about young Asian boys who like like anime and stuff like that, and he yeah. gave it to a publisher, and they said. This is strange. They're, they're not really Asian. And he was like, what do you mean they're not Asian? I grew up playing, you know, all these games. This is my life. And they said, well, we're looking for something that is really, really Asian. And he was thinking, what the hell? This is, you know, this is my experience. And it, it's very interesting that that is the case. And, you know, there are discussions and debates about how publishing is so white and so Western. And I guess it, it sort of leads into, you know, there's this question I always ask about Western acknowledgement of African rights and legitimacy so is yeah. a writer from that part of the world worth reading if they haven't won some kind of you know international award or if someone in the west hasn't said hey here's a great book from africa you know and there's so much happening on the continent and you do say that you know there's so many writers who live on the continent writing great things but they're not getting that international acknowledgement so you know how do you think african creatives can sort of navigate this challenge of recognition you know especially in placing themselves within a global context but like Within that, there's also the question of do they need to be within this global context? So it's it's a very difficult sort of... It's a tension that I feel like we can't really solve. You know, how do we deal with that? It's, it's difficult. Now, think about it like this. You know that Things Fall Apart is apparently the African... No, <laughs> But actually, in Africa, it's... The Hour of God. Have you ever heard of The Hour of yes. God? That is actually the best novel. And it's the most widely read novel in Africa. And even Achebe himself said that if you ever catch him reading his novels, you might catch him reading Hour uh, of God. Look at the, uh, the way Things Fall Apart is read. In Africa, Things Fall Apart is about a man who is in the grips of fear. And what fear does to him, the way it raises him to the top, and then it drops him. But here, 
since Falapa is a novel that records the moment when things fell apart in Africa mm. and the other people of Europe. Yeah. Do you see where I'm coming from? Yeah. So with that kind of tension, we, personally, I look at it that this way, that the West is going to read African writing the way it wants to read it. Okay? Mm. And Africans, it's entirely up to them to raise uh, their ideas, their views about African literature, and to make it known amongst themselves what they value most as the literature that represents them. Mm-hmm. And it's now beginning to happen because of um, uh, the uh, uh, communication, especially Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, many Africans, writers and readers, meet on Facebook and talk about the novels and talk about issues. But in the, fa- in the past, this wasn't so. You know, so we, we in Uganda, we just knew about Uganda and perhaps Kenya because we are quite related and perhaps because Nigeria, because again, the West published a lot of their novels and, we, you know, brought them around Africa. But until Africa starts to distribute, and it's all about distribution. Mm. And my dream is that if China makes kingdom you know, the Kindle as yeah. accessible in Africa as the phone is, then we cut out the middleman yeah. who distributes the novels because the, the place is so big and communication in terms of road and trains and flights is not yet there. So if we invest more money in editing and every child has access to kinder, then distribution of novels within Africa would be much better. Mm. Okay? But uh, you can't blame someone like Adichie for how she's writing. I remember when I first published my novel, uh, first sent out my novel, I even had no idea that I was writing in such an African way. I, got, I sent it to an agent who wrote back and said, your, Af- your novel is too African. <laughs> too African? I swear. What does that even mean? <laughs> I had no idea that there was such a thing as too African. Too African. And then she told me that, you, that was in 2003, and she told me, you live in Britain. We are looking for something like um, Brick Lane. Hmm. Yeah. Or, Helena Yeyemi is the Icarus girl. Now, the African has an, a leg in Europe and has a leg in Africa. The na, Indian has a leg in Africa, a brother in India, but a leg in Europe. So that's what people were reading. <laughs> okay? And then I realized, okay, I was writing to African and I was going to write like that. So, as long as the West has that amount of power in terms of publication, in terms of market, in terms of editing, and in terms of creating uh, celebrities, it's entirely up to Africa to raise its yeah. profile. Mm. Yes. 
That's very true. And kind of sad, but it's the reality. It is the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask about, so you've said before that you ground your work very solidly in oral tradition. Yes. Uh, can you tell us exactly what this means to you and, and how in particular it influences your work? Well, um, as I told you before, or as I've said in quite a few interviews, mm-hmm. I grew up with this um, duality. Um, when I was with my father, he was such a colonized, so God help him. <laughs> uh, he believed in Shakespeare. He believed in speaking English like they do on BBC. Mm-hmm. So he bought me um, in Blytons. Oh. And I read a lot of the abridged forms of the European canon, especially uh, the Brontes, the um, oh, Dickens, yeah. uh, Jane Austen, and the American, oh God, who is he? He wrote Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Mm. So I, I grew up with a lot of that. But I was born at a time when my grandfather had a lot of control on his family. So he had a say in what happened to me. Mm-hmm. So he would say, that send the child to the villages as well, because we don't want her Europeanized. At the time, mm-hmm. he looked at the city as Europeanizing. So I go to, to my grandfather's, and there, there was a lot of storytelling. And even when they read, they read from Ugandan novels in Luganda. So somebody would sit somewhere and we would sit around him and he would read the novel in Luganda. And it would sound like he was telling the story orally, you know. So for me, then the, my novel would not have roots in the Western canon. Because mm. and everybody has a all writing has a history. The British writing has their histories. Mine has its roots in oral traditions. And for me, to validate that was to start, for example, with Chinto, which uh, is the myth or the Adamic story of Buganda, where we start, where we come from as human beings. So it, in a way, it changed was to nod at the history of my writing because that's where Uganda creativity started. Mm-hmm. But also, it's if my father brought me up on um, the Western canon, and a lot of children in Uganda being brought up like that. It's up to me as a writer to stop and say, hang on a minute, there's oral literature. You need to remember this. Mm. And this is why I do so. In fact, in the novel that I'm working on right now, I, I focus so much. At least with Chintu, it was more interpretive. Here, the stories do make around in the, in the novel. Wow. That's great. You know, and that sort of leads directly into our next question about language. So, you know, so this connection, between, so the difference between the English and, you know, the oral traditions of um, Buganda. Yeah. And so 
in in your book, Chintu, there's a lot of there's a hefty amount of Luganda words and phrases, you know, throughout the yeah. text. And considering yeah. that you were working from this oral tradition, do you think it's difficult to sort of bridge the language gap between you know English and that language? And what kinds of things do you think might get lost in translation? Um. Oh, you as uh, Marachila said, you have to fight hair hair raising. Fights with the language, make it do what you want to do. But um, the the language, being what it is, was not so much about oral traditions as the failure of English to 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 say what I wanted it to do. Mm. So uh, I decided that where English lets me down, I'll use a Luganda word, but I'll use it in such a way, using mainly context, mm. that a, a non-Muganda reader would understand it. Because remember, there are only five million Ganda people in Uganda. <laughs> Everybody else is non-Ganda, and we are 36 million people, and I was writing to all of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was also writing to East Africans and Africans. So, uh, yes, uh, the language was important to, you know, to, to validate it, to, uh, and also to, um, to privilege the Ugandan reader, I'm afraid I do, in that <laughs> respect. I did it in such a way that I was aware that another reader would not lose anything out of it. It's just that a Ugandan reader would get excited at mm. words. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not so much about the translation from oral traditions and more with the translation from Luganda. So there are words that have no translations whatsoever mm. in English. And so, you know, you would write the, the, the sentence or the moment and then go back to it and twist words and turn words around. In the end, I would go for a Luganda word, get rid of the Ugandan reader, and then try and twist the context for the non-Ugandan reader. Mm. That is that is very interesting. I, I, actually, I wanted to ask you as well about um, so particularly in Shinto, one of the most compelling parts of the book is yeah. this pre-colonial experience of characters at the very beginning. Yeah. So you write it with such I mean just clarity and focus, and for me as a reader, it just seems so unbelievably real. I was wondering if maybe you could talk us through your your research process and how exactly you wrote this section about ancient Buganda. Oh. Oh, it was so long ago. <laughs> that writing started perhaps when I was very young from the stories that were written about those times, which are mainly in Luganda novels. And I am one of those people if you if you tell me something I'm going to think so much before it happened and so much after it had happened, but you've told me just this incident. 
you know. So, for example, I would look at my grandfather and imagine the dark ages he grew up in as a boy, you know. So, with the, with the novel, I wrote the story first. And then I went back, you know, that story of the 1750s. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and researched the uh, times, anything that had been written about it. So I found the kings because the, only the kings gave me time. Otherwise, there's no time. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So in Buganda, time is within the reigns. So in, in Britain, they have the Victorian age and, you know, mm-hmm. so that's what we have. So for me to be able to tell time, I had to go back to the kings. Mm-hmm. And I read the stories about those kings. But remember those stories were written in English and they were written by English people. Mm-hmm. And so I had to remove the chef, which I call the Eurocentric view. Right. But also those stories were told in, in perhaps in Luganda and then translated into Swahili and then translated into <laughs> English. So I had to get rid of all of that. But then again, also, the stories were told from a very masculine point of view because oral traditions are very masculinist. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you remember the, uh, uh, the queen mother, the, mm-hmm. the king mother, the one who, who is, is made sure that the son, her sons, three sons inherited the throne, so she, she encouraged brothers to kill brothers. Mm-hmm. That one is true from history. But her story was muffled. You, you, you know, they did not, for example, talk about her as an ambitious woman. All they did was give her a name, Nawlia, which meant that I, I devoured power. And so from that name, I created a character. What kind of woman would devour power? What kind of woman would you know, encourage the death of her sons. Mm -hmm. But also, I had also read that king mothers held courts that rivaled with the kings. So if you wanted to get anything done, you had to please the king's mother as well as the king. Mm -hmm. So from that, I created uh, that woman. And, And then there was a sister who killed a king and reinstated a brother. Mm-hmm. Again, her name, they, again, she was written out. All I found was her name, Nasolo. Now, Solo is animal. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how they perceived her. You know, wow. she's not feminine, she's an animal. Right. So, again, <laughs> from the name, do you see how then the research was not so much about what I found, but more in the names, that mm. the names do so much in history. Yeah. That is 
That is so interesting. And as you were speaking about that, I just remembered one Shakespeare character, actually, who reminds me of those two women, but of it slightly different stories. Can you guess who I'm going to talk about now? I know, I know. Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I love her. You, you know, that sort of... Because it, for me, Lady Macbeth represented, you know, a different woman from that era. You know, she was... She, she desired power and she... Yeah convinced her husband to kill the king just so he could be king so that that's very interesting actually see we should get more african books in english schools so they can see the comparisons but that's <laughs> by the by um <laughs> let me interrupt you there but the, the, if you look at the way the kings in buganda were going on about it it's exactly what shakespeare wrote about the kings yeah this right that's absolutely right. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. It just came to me because yeah. Lady Macbeth actually is my this. I should I probably shouldn't say this in public, but she's like my literary heroine. Yes, <laughs> not because I want to go and kill men or anything. I just totally that, understand that, <laughs> that sense of here's a woman who defies all odds. Right, she's not the, the typical woman, and she's she knows what she wants, so she's going to go for it. And Shakespeare writing that character in that time, I think that that means a lot. So. Yeah, it's. I think it's very interesting. I'm really glad that you talked about that. I'm really glad that you did. But yeah, um, actually, so, so kind of on that, you identify yourself as a feminist writer. Yes, I um, do. And I wanted to talk for a moment, maybe a little bit about identity here. So specifically, women in Shinto have a huge, uh, almost an eclipsing role, even though the book is told through the eyes of men. And it's. <laughs> yeah, and they're not intended at all. Of course not. Um, and there's, I mean, there's also interesting treatment of homosexuality in Buganda yes. society. So, what's going through your mind exactly in terms of identity when you write these things into a piece like this? Okay, for example, do you remember uh, the character called Faith? Her name is Faith in English. Hmm. Yeah. When I wrote the novel, she had eclipsed her husband, Canon, totally. Right. You know, but she was not a Chinto, you know. Mm -hmm. So I had to go back to her and try to muffle her and repress her. Can you imagine a feminist repressing her? <laughs> her feminist character. But in the end, I failed. And what I did was to enhance um, Kanani's uh, quietness and her his weakness and sort of make her, hus her his wife a bit um, menacing mm -hmm. you know but I just could not shut that woman up I think <laughs> <laughs> it makes it a better book I assure you <laughs> um, but how then do I write um the identities. I don't know. The women just were. For example, you remember in the same book, Kanani's book, his cousin. Mm -hmm. Um, she had so many names. She had, she called it. She was supposed to be Magdalene. She called herself Magda. Remember her? Mm -hmm. She's the first of all. She's the most popular character in Africa. Uh, in that novel, hmm. because of the way she sort of chameleon, she just reinvents herself over and over. Right. Um, but it, it it was it. This is the way women are. They just are. 
I didn't work hard at them. Perhaps I worked to muffle them. For example, you remember um, the final book, not the final book, but the Missy, the, uh, the intellectual. Oh, of course, yes. His daughter, the, uh, the, army, girl, the army woman. Okay, uh, yes. She had a much, much larger part of the story, and I cut it out. So that I let her father be. So I'm curious as to why why muffle the characters? Because they, that was not what this that they were not the story. Hmm. Their father. It was uh, Mrs. Story that I wanted to tell. Right. It was Kanani's story that I wanted to tell. Uh, the novel I'm working on is the feminist novel. Right. You know? the, the one I wanted to tell, because it was telling the Adamic figure, it was going to be masculinist whether I wanted it or not. So the feminist in me kept on propping up, and I had to muffle her. Huh. Wow, that is absolutely it's fascinating. Really interesting, actually, because then it's... it's I, I don't really think about all these things, you know, in terms of characterization. So yes. somebody could assume, oh, yes, strong women in literature. But actually, sometimes you're thinking, well, what is the story? And where does this strong voice of a woman stand? You know, is Are you putting a woman's voice in there just because she's a woman and you want to be like, yes, I've read a feminist book? Or is it, look, I have a story to tell and you don't fit in my story? And that's absolutely fine. You know, and that's it's it's actually refreshing to listen to an author talk about these things because I think these are the things that we don't really you know hear about. They're kind of like in the that's the you know back work. You know, you don't you don't put that in public. So I think this is cool. No. <laughs> I I I but I've mentioned before that I wrote against myself. Hmm. Hmm. I had to go back and read it and read it over and over. And say, okay, I do love you very much, but I'm going <laughs> to be here. Huh. That's great. That's that's actually that is brilliant. You know, I mean, it it definitely gives us a very different perspective of um, <laughs> African voices, African literary voices, and I think that that's a very important thing. You know, to so we 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 know that there are writers who write in a particular way to please the Western reader. And yeah. by the Western reader, I also include people like myself, Nigerian-born, I live here. I don't know what sort of cloak I wear when I read certain African books. And then there's <laughs> the other side where this is, an, like Justin said, unapologetically African book, you know. And like you said, you were writing against that sort of Western expectation of the African book, and I think that that is great. And this okay. is, this is, I'm so excited. I don't, I, I need to calm down, but I, this is great. We, can I say something about that? Sure. Um, I, I wouldn't use the word please. I don't think writers sit down to write novels that please the Western reader. Hmm. Because, for example, um, I sent Jean to, to Chattel and we, Windows publishers, they're big, huge publishers. Mm. And this woman was excited about it and she said, I want to publish it, but I have to convince a lot of people to, to, to get to publish it. And when she came back, she told me, 
we had I had not managed to convince them. And she said that she did not know how to edit it. Mm. And she said, I dare not change it. Mm. And I was quiet because that was fantastic. Mm. You know, the, the fact that she had realized that she was not um, equipped to edit it, mm-hmm. but also that she dared not change it. Do you see what I mean? So uh, other African writers do not write to please, but they hand in books which the editor then looks at and says, I can do this. So you've had uh, uh, someone say, they sent the book back and they told me to throw away half of it and take the novel in this direction. Yeah. Or you've had an author saying, I wrote just three chapters, sent it to them, and they said, we, want, we can work with this. But what that mean, actually, is that you send in a chapter and they say, do this or do that. So they walk you through the novel. So in mm-hmm. the end, what you produce is something they have control over. Right. But Chintu had been published in Uganda, in Africa. Mm-hmm. They cannot change it without being compromised. Yeah. Wow. That is so thank you for that perspective. It's it's been great, you know, talking to you and we're oh. coming up to our time now. So I'd love to have this because I, I love talking to I am like a, a budding writer myself and I love talking to actual writers. Well what what do I mean by actual writers? I love talking to writers, <laughs> you know, about their processes and things like that. Oh and yeah. I think it's so great and this conversation could go on and on and on and tea and biscuit. <laughs> but um, we'll have to call it short now. But thank you so much oh, for so talking fun. to us. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Um, do you have anything to say, Justin? Um, no, just uh, that is absolutely <laughs> incredible conversation. Thank you so much for coming uh, to talk to us, Jennifer. It's really such a pleasure. Oh, thanks for calling me. I enjoyed it a great deal. We would like to thank everybody listening to this podcast and remind you to go visit the LSA Africa Summit website at lsafricasummit.com for any questions or to register for the event and to stay tuned for more interviews we'll run in the future. Thanks again and we'll talk to you next time.